With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When the German pharmaceuticals firm Bayer bought the agricultural giant Monsanto last year, it had one big worry. The weed killer Roundup, Monsanto's star product, was suspected of being carcinogenic and faced a pile of lawsuits. We examine how Bayer, the company that invented aspirin, is dealing with the headache. And the president of Mongolia will be at the White House today. But meanwhile, there's a group of Mongolians on a rather different diplomatic mission. We meet a touring band that's bringing the country's traditional instruments and the ancient art of throat singing to metal music. But first... In recent years, many Western nations have turned away from liberalism. But there's one country that remains a notable exception. As a lot of the rich world has turned towards populism, Canada very much hasn't. Brooke Unger is The Economist's America's editor. The Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has been kind of a poster boy for global liberalism. He faces a general election in October in which his version of liberalism, at least, is going to be tested. Our colleague, Madeleine Drohan, sat down with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau last month to discuss the upcoming election. He laid out what he thinks is at stake. Whether or not we get to continue on the track we laid out to Canadians in, in 2015, I mean, we... We took on a challenge that I think was a pretty important one of, say, of recognizing that Western democracies around the world had a struggling middle class, a middle class that felt that it wasn't part of the growth that was going on around them. And we said, well, how do we put people back at the success of our economy? Uh, instead of you know, hoping that trickle-down will work for them, let's turn it around and invest in their communities give them more money directly, empower them to help shape their own futures. How do you think Mr. Trudeau has, has done on that score so far? Well, he certainly made a, a pretty good faith attempt. I mean, he's tried to put more money into the pockets of the middle class through an expanded child care credit and through tax cuts. And more people now say that they're middle class than when Trudeau took office. But one of the challenges that Trudeau has had since he's taken office is that the oil economy, which is a big part of uh, Alberta's economy, was hit quite hard by low oil prices uh, globally. And Trudeau has tried to give the oil economy a boost by approving the building of a pipeline from Alberta to, to the West Coast. But at the same time, he has a strong uh, environmental agenda, which is to meet Canada's commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement to, to cut its carbon emissions by 2030. And the way he's tried to reconcile that is by saying, on the one hand, we'll give you your pipeline, you can export your oil to Alberta. But on the other hand, we're going to impose a national price on carbon. He's not getting credit from either environmentalists or oil people for that. People for a long time have been putting forward a question, you know, do you protect the environment or do you grow the economy? 
And, you know, you can see political parties that very clearly position themselves on one side or the other of that question. What we said throughout the campaign was that we thought the only way to build a strong economy was to protect the environment. And the only way to properly protect the environment is to have a strong economy that gives you the tools and the technologies to do that. But that kind of controversy isn't, isn't the only kind that has, has affected his, his tenure as prime minister. Well, I mean, there have been a couple of scandals that have hurt him, uh, you know, in particular a, a allegations that his office tried to interfere in the prosecution of, a, of an engineering company for corruption. He says he did nothing wrong, but it definitely affected his support. And so what do you think his chances are? We don't know if Trudeau is going to win this election. I think he has a good chance to win it. He's made some mistakes. The conservatives are putting up a, are going to put up a pretty strong challenge. If Trudeau leaves and the conservatives come in under Andrew Scheer, a sheer government is not going to be the same kind of sinusure of liberalism that, you know, a Trudeau government has been. But that doesn't mean that a conservative government is going to sort of abandon Canada's liberal values. I mean, it will remain a relatively open and tolerant country. I don't think it's going to go the way of Italy or the U.S. or, or, or even the U.K. with Brexit. I think it, it has pretty strong antibodies to that. Elections often play themselves out on the few things where there are sharp differences of policy and perspective. And I think what I'm going to keep trying to do, what we were able to do in, in 2015, is emphasize that the things that, that we share as Canadians are always far greater than the things that make us different from you know, one region to the next, one perspective to the next. What do you think sets Canada apart? Why hasn't it gone down the path that so much of the rich world has? Well, I think a lot of it has to be down to you know, kind of geography and history. Canada is surrounded by three oceans and its other border is with the United States. It's not exposed to some of the stresses and strains that other rich countries are. I mean, Justin Trudeau doesn't have to worry about large numbers of immigrants coming across his southern border. Canada is not across a relatively small body of water from Africa. So, you know, these have protected Canada to some extent for some of the anxieties that other countries have especially about immigration. But, you know, there are also reasons of history as well. I mean, Canada was really formed from an arrangement between two different nations, a French-speaking nation and an English-speaking nation. You could also argue three principal nations, you know, because the indigenous component is certainly very important and is increasingly seen as very important in Canada. Some historians have argued that the process of accommodation that allowed this to happen has kind of set Canada up to be a, a pretty open and tolerant country. And so what do you think of the signature features that represent that openness, that toleration? Well, I, mean, I guess the most striking thing is that Canada does accept very high levels of immigration given the size of the country. I mean, it lets in around 330,000, 350,000 immigrants a year, which is right around 1% of its population. Among those new people coming in are, are refugees. I mean, Justin Trudeau had asked in a lot of Syrian refugees towards the beginning of his premiership. Canada was something of a pioneer in recognizing what you might call modern rights. It was, I think, the fourth country to recognize gay marriage under Trudeau, the first large country to legalize cannabis for recreational use. It's been among the pioneers in, in kind of recognizing transgender rights. It does have a socially liberal tradition as well, which is largely an outgrowth of its 1982 Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's not a large economy and with a, a very long border with the United States, so it's also been very open, at least sort of in the past few decades, very open to trade. 
afraid, even though people blame some of this surge in populism on the effects of globalization, Trudeau has very much stuck with a policy of promoting globalization. So in terms of openness to goods and openness to services and openness to the, the vast foreign culture on its doorstep and openness to people, Canada is open in quite a lot of ways. And that hasn't been influenced at all by the, the, the kind of nasty rhetoric, you know, that we see, for instance, from the Trump administration, the, the big neighbor to the south? Well, I mean, I think there has been an influence. You know, certainly Canadians are worrying that some of that, you know, American polarization is coming to Canada. And, there, you know, there is some evidence of that. I mean, uh, opinion polls show that, you know, although hostility to so-called visible minorities remains steady, it's moved so that that hostility is much more concentrated in the Conservative Party than it is in the Liberal Party. Uh, and you're also seeing the same kind of skewing on issues like climate change. So you have the preconditions in a way for a pretty uh, bitter and polarized election battle. I'm not sure if that's going to get as polarized as, I, I don't think it'll get as polarized as it is in the United States. But, you know, there is some kind of risk there. And I think Trudeau is prepared for a somewhat more polarized campaign. I think at, at certain extents, this is going to be a polarized election in terms of some of the rhetoric that flies around. But I, I am actually counting on and going to work very, very hard to make sure that Canadians themselves aren't overly polarized. I'm not going to be looking for wedge issues. I'm not going to be looking for ways to play off one region against another for immediate gain. I, I don't want this election to be polarized. I'm going to make sharp contrasts with uh, the policy positions of my opponents, but I'm not going to go around insulting voters who won't vote for me. My job is to try and bring people together in a way that recognizes the challenges we're facing and reassures them. Amid all of this change, how would you say that Canadians see themselves in the world, not just its politicians, but its people? Canadians historically have defined themselves both in comparison to and in contrast with the United States. Many, and this isn't true of all Canadians, and it partly depends on which part of the country you're in, but many look at Donald Trump and make them think, we want to emphasize what's distinctive about us. His values are not our values. It's often said that Canadians always go for bronze, you know, the sense that they live pretty well, you know, that they're happy not being in the forefront and the front lines, not being, you know, the world champions, particularly in, in anything outside of certain sports. I think that's changing to some extent. You know, you're seeing in, in the corporate world, you're seeing in the world of innovation, a real desire to become leaders rather than just sort of followers or an appendage to, to the United States. Brooke, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary. It's been a bad few months for the German chemicals giant, Bayer. In May of this year, it lost a $2 billion lawsuit from claimants who said Roundup, a popular weed killer brand that it now owns, caused their cancer, though the award was reduced to $87 million last week. 
Last month, politicians in Austria started proceedings to ban the use of glyphosate, the chemical that's used in Roundup. These problems, and plenty more like them, stem from the company's acquisition of Monsanto in 2016. Bayer knew about the risks of litigation, but I think they underestimated the risk. Wendelin von Bredo is The Economist's European business and finance correspondent. They thought it's something they could deal with quite easily because, of course, they think these claims do not have merit. So glyphosate does not cause cancer or is in any way carcinogenic. Why is it, though, with that risk that Bayer was so keen to acquire Monsanto? Bayer could have been a takeover target before it bought Monsanto. So by becoming much bigger through the acquisition of Monsanto, it wanted to preempt becoming a potential takeover target by another big company. And Monsanto, for its part, wanted to be acquired. Monsanto didn't necessarily want to be acquired, but Bayer offered such an attractive price, paying $63 billion, that shareholders were keen to have the deal happen. And so that's why Bayer then managed to take over Monsanto. And so these risks are kind of coming to be realized now in in American courts. Tell me how that's playing out. So there's a wave of litigation in America. There are more than 13,000 potential lawsuits that are in the pipeline in the States. Three of them have already come to trial and they could become very costly, although judges tend to cut the awards, that the, the sky-high awards that have already been awarded. Is the focus entirely in America on this question? The focus of the litigation is entirely in America. So so all of these more than 13,000 lawsuits were fired by American um, plaintiffs. But Bayer also has problems in Europe. And Austria just became the first European Union country to ban the use of glyphosate from November onward. The fear is, of course, that other EU countries could follow, even though the EU has proclaimed glyphosate safe for use at least until 2022, when they're going to revisit that decision. And how's that playing out in Austria? Austrian farmers are not happy about the parliament's uh, decision because they say that the use of Roundup increases uh, their yield. So Austrian farmers now feel they are at a competitive disadvantage to other European country farmers who are still using glyphosate. Only as long as glyphosate is used then in other markets in other countries. I mean, is, do you get the sense that this is a the sort of thin end of the wedge and that it will become banned everywhere? Yes, it is a thin end of a wedge. I think it's very likely that the EU will not renew its permission to use glyphosate in Europe, which means that from 2022 onward, it may be banned all over the EU, which is basically then the end of herbicides based on glyphosate in Europe. So if Bayer were to use Roundup altogether, if it could not produce the stuff anymore because it's banned in Europe and it's too risky in America because of the litigation risk, it would hurt but not kill the German company. Um, Roundup accounts for 12 to 15 percent of the sales of its crop business, which is only one half of the business, and perhaps 1 billion euros or around a quarter of buyers operating profit. So it's painful, but it's not fatal for the firm. But what about the cost of all of these lawsuits? Is there a, a guess for that? Yes, there is a guess. So I spoke to a German analyst who um, um, at Bader Bank who knows the company very well. And he estimates that these lawsuits could cost between 5 billion euros and 20 billion euros, which is a big chunk, but buyer could manage it. And it's 
much less than the drop in buyers' share price would imply. I mean, buyers been losing some more than 50 billion euros in terms of its in, in market capitalization. So that seems to imply that investors overreacted to the litigation risk. But either way, it, it now appears that the acquisition of Monsanto it might be something that, that buyer regrets. Yes and no. Yes, just because of the litigation risk and its share price is doing so badly. But Monsanto did come with very interesting technology for digital farming, which which really makes Bayer now the market leader in digital farming, which is very much the future in farming. Digital farming tools help farmers use all the data from weather patterns to the quality of their soil in order to farm in the most efficient way. What it probably should have done is just acquired Monsanto without Roundup and just get rid of that entire part of the business. Then it would have probably been a very good business decision. But with Roundup, it proved to give Bayer a huge headache. So what is it that Bayer can or, or should do to get past all of this? Well, the first thing they should do is to settle with the plaintiffs because then the litigation risk would have been contained. If that doesn't work. There is the idea of splitting the business again into a pharma business and an agribusiness arm, which, of course, the current management doesn't like because they engineered a takeover. So it would sort of undo their work. But that would probably be the wisest thing. The third thing they should do, and they are already doing, is to invest billions in alternatives to glyphosate-based herbicides. And as they are already making such an effort, they might counterintuitively have an advantage if ever Roundup is banned because they've already done the research and they'll be able to come up with alternative products. Vendelin, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure, Jason. When you think of metal music, you probably think of something like this. You probably don't think of Mongolia. The Who, no, not them, it's H-U, are a Mongolian band that has taken the rock music world by storm. They've introduced the ancient practice of throat singing to contemporary guitar-driven melodies. We'd like to call this style Hunu Rag. The Hunu is an ancient Mongolian empire, also known as the Hans to the Western world. Gala is the band's lead singer and is translated by Tuga, the band's manager. It started as tribes and people try to communicate with the nature through their vocal and make a similar sound as wind or water. It's a very unique technique that a person can make two or more polyphonic sound just using one's voice. It's very hard technique to learn. A lot of tribes do that. Mongol, you know, nomadic tribes have their own different styles. We're very different than uh, other metal rock bands because we use a lot of Mongolian traditional instruments, Murunghur, Topshur, Tumurhur, and most importantly, we sing throughout singing. And we know we're the first one to play this style. And also we know that we're not the last one to play this. 
It all started with our producer Dashka. And eight years ago, when he was traveling to his father's birthplace, and he wanted to write some beautiful song for his father and for the forefathers of Mongolia. While he was sitting there, he got this idea. We can combine this Mongolian tradition music with Western rock music. It would just sound really good. His father is from uh, uh, the birthplace of throat singing. So he got this idea and he started researching old Mongolian poetries and musical instruments. Four of us, we started working on the first songs. We found exactly what we were looking for. So that's how it started. The ultimate goal is we wanted to reach to every person in the world because we wanted to share our message. We want to inspire everyone in the world. Be respectful to your parents. Be loyal to your country. Respect and cherish this beautiful nature we have. Love the world and unite together. Do something good for the world. That's the ultimate goal. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary.